This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot. And they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May. And again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates. And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, Listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. I'm extremely excited to announce a brand new sponsor for the Behind the Shield podcast, and that is Transcend. Now, for many of you listening, you are probably working the same brutal shifts that I did for 14 years, suffering from sleep deprivation, body composition challenges, mental health challenges, libido, hair loss, etc., now, when it comes to the world of hormone replacement and peptide therapy, what I have seen is a shift from doctors telling us that we were within normal limits, which was definitely incorrect, all the way to the other way now where men's clinics are popping up left, right, and center. So I myself wanted to find a reputable company that would do an analysis of my physiology and then offer supplementations without ramming, for example, hormone replacement therapy down my throat. Now, I came across Transcend because they have an altruistic arm, and they were a big reason why the 7X project I was a part of was able to proceed because of their generous donations. They also have the Transcend Foundations, where they're actually putting military and first responders through some of their therapies at no cost to the individual. So my own personal journey so far, filled in the online form, went to Quest, got blood drawn, and a few days later, I'm talking to one of their wellness professionals as they guide me through my results and the supplementation that they suggest. In my case specifically, because I transitioned out the fire service five years ago and been very diligent with my health, my testosterone was actually in a good place. So I went down the peptide route and some other supplements to try and maximize my physiology, knowing full well the damage that 14 years of shift work has done. Now, I also want to underline, because I think this is very important, that each of the therapies they offer, they will talk about the pros and cons. So, for example, a lot of first responders in shift work, our testosterone will be low, but sometimes nutrition, exercise, and sleep can offset that on its own. So this company is not going to try and push you down a path, especially if it's one that you can't come back from. So whether it's libido, brain fog, inflammation, gut health, performance, sleep, this is definitely one of the most powerful tools in the toolbox. 
So to learn more, go to transcendcompany.com or listen to episode 808 of the Behind the Shield podcast with founder Ernie Colling. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back onto the show for the third time, Fire Chief and author of Taking the Cape Off, Pat Kenny. Now, in this third conversation, we discuss a host of topics, from a recent fire that affected his own family, a powerful trip back to Ireland revisiting multi-generational trauma, the hiring crisis in the fire service, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible and powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 900 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back Pat Kenny. Enjoy. Well, Pat, I want to start by saying, firstly, welcome back for the third time onto the Behind the Shield podcast. I'm excited for that. Thanks for, thanks for having me back again. It really is an honor. So we were talking before I hit record through a series of technical issues on the podcast hosting site that I used to use. I realized a lot of the old um, episodes really just weren't available to anyone on Spotify and iTunes and all the main ones that they use. So when this goes out, I would have also released the bonus episode because listening to our first conversation, we've done three now, I realized what an incredible, incredible conversation it was. And obviously you telling, you know, Sean and Eileen and, every, and all the, you know, the incredibly powerful story that you still present with today. So for people listening, if you haven't heard episode 266, I advise you to hit pause on this one, go back and listen to that first, and then jump into this. But that being said, as we sit here today, it is uh, supposed to have a massive storm here in Florida at the moment, but uh, where are we finding you on planet Earth? So I'm still in lovely Downers Grove, Illinois. We too have a storm that's come through. Uh, today was um, snow and sleet and rain. And um, I always kind of smile when I was the emergency manager for the village along with the fire chief, we would see the weather forecast and we would put together this great incident action plan for horrendous things. And usually if you put that plan together, you got two inches of snow. So I'm sure they went through that last night. Uh, it has not ended up outside right now as bad as they said it was going to be. But uh, it, uh, but it's January and in Illinois, so it's kind of what you figure is going to going to happen. So, um, but good overall, good. Good, yeah. They uh, they close the schools here, um, and the schools are the shelters when we have hurricanes and massive storms. And it ended up going, I think, pretty much north of us. And you know, so there's some questions as to why they close it. But again, had it come through and they hadn't closed, then people would be demonizing oh, yeah. people for not doing it right so i say right. kudos to them for being cautious and and being prepared and the kids had one night of you know good sleep today sure 100 that's that, that that's a you can't win situation 
So you always want to err on I protected versus I took a chance. Hundred so, percent. I agree. Kudos to them. So we were talking before we hit record, and I've talked about this a couple of times now. Um, for me, 2023 was, I, I can't even describe it. Almost everyone that I love struggled this last year, family, close friends, everyone was in, was in some sort of hole. And I, I was, you know, trying to be there for a lot of them. I flew back to England twice to, to, uh, be there for two different, uh, family members at one point. And so. I know that it's been a challenge for you. Before we get to the specifics, though, of some of the challenges that you and your family have, have found, I can't help but feel like that is now the tidal wave, the ripple effect of the pandemic. I think the last conversation we have has come towards the end of it by that point. But now, in when I look back and reflect on 2023, I feel like that was really when it revealed itself what happens when, you know, people are you know, told to to stay in their house and separated from their family and friends and all the things that we were told to do. It was a real, real virus, absolutely, but I don't know if it was handled the best way. I can't help but feel like that has been the ripple effect that we've seen this last year. So before we go into your specific family stuff, which I'd love to dive into as well, you are, you know, you've really got your pulse on the mental health um, element, especially when it comes to our profession. What have you observed as far as the ripple effect this last 12, 18 months? You know, one one thing, and I don't know if it's tied to the pandemic, we've had this discussion a lot in my travels, um, but there's a consistency to it, no matter geographically where you're at. It's really getting difficult to find men and women who are interested in going into the fire service and going into EMS. And the, the kind of the knee-jerk reaction has been, well, the, the pandemic did that. There's because it brought in the reality of not only were you putting your own life on the line, which for most of us, we were always like, well, okay, as long as I'm not impacting anybody else, I'm okay. That's what I signed up for. But at that point with the pandemic, you now were worried about bringing it home and bringing it to your wife and your kids and significant other. But I don't think that's what it is. Um, I, I'm sure that it had some kind of an impact on it, but I mean, here in Illinois, it used to be if you were running a test for a full-time position in a department, you'd have a couple hundred candidates. Um, now, there have literally been some tests that have been run in the last six months here where they had nobody. And so the, the pandemic, I, I think, yes, more awareness. But what I'm, I'm seeing more of is the offshoot of the pandemic that's not EMS is people really started to value their family time together. Um, kind of ironic, sometimes you were forced um, into a family situation and maybe you were like, okay, this this was nice in the beginning, but this is going on a little too long around each other's nerves and kind of the human part of it. But I think that value of sitting around the kitchen table, that value of playing a game together, that value of having mom and dad around um, kind of cemented that family stability. And so now all of a sudden you're going back into the real world and it was that trauma of people being told to go back into their offices while well, you were, you were had an option maybe if you were in that kind of environment to work from home. And a lot of businesses have altered their model and to allow people to do that. Unfortunately, you can't work a full arrest from home and you can't work a working fire from home. And so you have to be in a building and you have to be available for 24 hours or whatever your shift would be. And a number of the younger people are, are not really up for that. They want 
that family time. Um, when I came in, it was a security was really a big part of this profession. It's what you got to, you weren't going to get rich. You weren't going to get a bonus for doing a, a great job, but you were looking forward to a pension at the end that you would be able to lead a decent life when you retired because you knew your body was going to be beat up by the time you were, you were in your mid fifties. And now the pension is not really that important. Now it's, we can go make a living. Usually you're having both parents working. So there's, there's enough finance coming in to have a decent living. And if I'm not real comfortable with the job I'm doing and I have a chance to have more family flexibility by going to X, I go to X. And so I, I see in our service, the fallout is finding people who are comfortable with the downside of the profession as opposed to coming to the glorified side of it. And then running that seesaw balance of, okay, yeah, I, I am going to be working on Christmas Day and I am going to be working on my wedding anniversary. However, I'm also going to have time off that I could take the kids to the zoo on a Tuesday afternoon that some other dad wouldn't have the pleasure. And I'm still getting enough benefit emotionally. My, that emotional bank account is getting enough deposits about feeling like I'm making a difference that I'm willing to take the other side, the downside and, and live with it, which I think you do in any profession. And that's been going on for a few hundred years. But I really think ours came under the microscope with that whole work environment. And I know there are departments out there that are doing research now about, you know, forget the 2448, forget that any kind of a model where you're gone for an entire day. Um, can you break it up so that mom or dad is home for breakfast to see the kids off to school or home for dinner? And how do you do that with staffing models? How do you do that with the budget impact? I know they're creatively trying to do it because they're finding that their staffing is beginning to be drastically overburdened because what used to be a nice overtime shift to have some additional money to buy kids gifts at their birthday or Christmas now is like too much. I'm, I'm living in that fire station and, and that's not healthy either. No, I think, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I don't think that, um, you know, the, the pandemic itself specifically has certainly revealed in some departments, you know, a lack of support from that department. The moment there were vaccine mandates and things like that, you know, you, you're part of this tribe and, you know, you literally will die for that badge that's on your chest, you know, performing the service that you signed up for. But then when that tribe turns their back on you, obviously, when you talk about mental health, organizational betrayal, that's a whole other conversation. But I think you're absolutely right. When firefighters were sitting around truly playing cards waiting for a fire specifically the old schedule was fine it, it just was you know but in 2023 with our men and women running you know literally 24 hours um the answer is not i don't think it's even to break up the day because the the swing shifts and all those ones are awful i mean look at our cops look at our doctors and nurses they work those shifts you know but to give them more rest and recovery in between and I think that the hiring crisis that we're seeing is more so that absolutely rightly so there was an inertia from the pandemic. A lot of people didn't work for a while and we're trying to get them fired up again. But now you can research what does it actually look like to be a firefighter? And like you said, back in the day, prior to me coming on, you know, the, the generation before me, they had a good pension. They had, you know, um, medical insurance that they carried through their entire retirement. Then you know, when I came on, they were cutting pensions. The medical insurance went away. It was COBRA for a year after you leave. You know, so some of those kind of carrots on the sticks went away. But 
you still want to serve. So you're still not as worried, but then you start seeing all the things that happen to us when we work 10, 15, 20 years. And now that's you know out there on the internet. So a young candidate is going to research now and be like, wait a second, when they're understaffed, they tell me that I can't go home. You know, and you were seeing this more and more and more. So we're in this vicious circle. So I agree with you a thousand percent until we turn it around and invest in our men and women and give them more rest and recovery. So the 2472, I think, is the gold standard. I think 24 is fine for a fire station when you have beds, but you've got to give people more time off. If, I, if you're going to stay up all night, you have to give them the time to recover before the next shift. And that is how we get people lining up outside our profession, wanting to do the job again. The, the desire is there, but they're not idiots. <laughs> they also they're understand all... that this looks absolutely awful at the moment. It's up to us as a profession to fix it so we can bring people back. And I think it's the the um, the fear of that you're going to destroy the culture by just making changes that for are for our benefits. And I don't see it that way at all. I, I would a, a Chicago training chief, um, Pete Van Dorp, who one, one time when I was getting ready to do Sean's talk, he was like, Pat, just tell me that you're not going to be another one of these guys that stands up there and goes, we've got to change our culture. So I'm so sick of hearing that. He goes, I see that we need to improve our culture. So that means we hang on to the things that are still worthwhile and valuable and then we improve them, just like when we started, you know, you weren't riding on the tailboard, you started wearing air packs, you weren't wearing three-quarter boots. And I really I give them credit for that because I use it all the time anymore and say, especially when you're dealing with your health, we know now things that we just didn't know before. Um, that sleep deprivation, every time I read a sleep study, it makes me a little nauseous because I think of how much I pushed myself through and without knowing it. Um, and not realizing what some of the long-term effect are. And when you get to be, I'll be 67 in May, when you get to this point, when you start to forget where your keys are, and I can't, I've got 412 pairs of these, you know, cheaters, because I, I lose them, you really begin to fear, is this dementia? Am I, am I, is this what's happened to me? And as opposed to, okay, I'm 67, you're going to forget it sometimes. We, we didn't know. Now, and you hit right on it, they do. And my, I really push departments when you're doing your orientation, not hiring, when you're doing your orientation, do you hit head on the challenges these men and women are signing up for? Did they walk into the orientation watching Chicago Fire? And they're like, whoa, this is, this is amazing. And yes, th th there are parts of the job that are absolute. You can't even describe them. Even TV doesn't do them do justice. However, do you tell them that at some point they're going to come across a call that is just going to go right through their heart. Because we, we, the irony is, in every country, the number one ingredient of a good firefighter is get somebody who cares. Then we expose them to the worst situation you could ever expose them to, and we act shocked that it bothers them. So do you tell them up front? Do you invite their significant other to come to the orientation and say, hey, you're going to see some stuff that nobody should ever have to see, some smells that you're, you're never going to forget. And when that happens, that's normal. And here's what we have in place, because we know that's going to occur, to help take care of you, to get you back whole, to bring you back to your loved ones whole. So whether that's we're, we're going to do additional sleep, we're going to look at nutrition, we're going to have our own psychiatrist who's part of our response team, whatever that would be, you need to tell them up front what's the challenge. And then more importantly, here's what we're going to do if your loved one 
wants to join our family. Here's how we're going to go about it. Instead, we ignore it until it hits the fan. And then it's like, oh my God, but we're in emergency crisis mode. And the people who've done their homework ahead of time have got to be sitting in the orientation going, so every day is nirvana in this job for 30 years. Nothing ever goes wrong. You're never sad. You're never pissed that you're here. You're never, no, that's not reality. Well, they're not telling me the truth. So I'll go do something where they tell me the truth. And we pride ourselves on our value of honesty. Let me in your home on your worst day. And you're not looking over your shoulder if I'm taking your Rolex watch or if I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing because you know I'm honest. But we don't start off right away with being honest with them when they walk in the door. And God bless them if they choose, after they walk out of their orientation to go, boy, this wasn't what I thought it was. It's not for me. Or your significant other. And this is a true story. What would be a year ago, December. A number one candidate went through an academy, flew through, flying colors, valedictorian, came out of an academy. First day on shift was in December. The shift was talking about, yeah, you know, we, we drew the holiday draw this year. So you'll learn how this goes, kid. But if you get New Year's Eve, you'll get Christmas Eve, you'll get it just kind of. And then next year, it'll rotate out. But we do a family thing. Our, our department's very involved on holidays. So the families come down, cook dinner together, and this kid's just staring at them. And they're like, well, what's the matter? He said, you mean I have to work Christmas Day? They're like, well, yeah. I thought he was kidding. The whole day? So, well, yeah, you don't get to go home for a few hours. No, the whole day. But then you'll be off the next couple of days, blah, blah, blah. Well, this young man went home and had a discussion with his significant other that was just husband and wife. And on that following Monday, he resigned. And the chief was shocked. And, and also, whatever every other consideration as a chief, you would have about staffing and financial impact. And it's like, what do you mean? And he said, I didn't realize that I had to work 24 hours on holidays and my wife wants no part of that. Now that took a lot of courage to do, um, but it, it's it's a reality. And if they had said, and the significant other was invited during the orientation, they, they could have shortcutted what ended up being a very difficult decision for a family. And I always use the analogy when I have about the cape going, you hand a man or woman the cape when they walk in the door of the academy, they're not giving it back, even if they should based on their significant other impact or what it does to them, they're not giving it back. You're either going to take it from them by firing them, or they're going to wear it through that entire career and be full of holes, some of which you can never fix. And I think that that's one of those areas we, we, we're just missing the ball. And, and I respond, a lot of chiefs will sometimes get upset with me when I said that and go, hey, Pat, do you realize how hard it is for us to get somebody in the door? And now you want us to tell them all this stuff at orientation? Yes, I do. Because if they're not leaving in the beginning when they should, they're going to be a problem at some point along the way, and you will have contributed to injuring them. And you as a chief have said your number one thing is to protect your people. Well, start before they ever get hired. I love that. I mean, talking about the honesties, I have literally put a kind of call to action this new year for courage in the fire service. And when you, you know, you talk about courage immediately, like, what are you talking about? We go into burning buildings, we cut people from cars, we hang off cliffs on ropes, whatever it is. And it's like, yeah, we do. But where is the courage for us advocating for the work environment that will not only benefit us physically and mentally, but also benefit our family dynamic? We're absolute cowards because what happens when you talk about the 2472? Oh, that'll never happen. They'll never go for it. 
well, excuse my language, what a pussy attitude that is. I thought you were a, you know, a courageous warrior. And yet when it comes to your own wellness, you're not willing to put up a fight at all. You know, there is no sense whatsoever that the people making decisions about when you work, work 40 hours and go home to their own bed every night. But you're trying to, you know, you're saying it's not worth the fight to push back on why you work 56 hours a week, 80 with a mandatory that week. You know, this is the problem is that we've become so, um, God, what's the right word? Uh, castrated, basically. You know, we're so beat down, we're so tired that we don't have the fight where it actually matters. And we talk about it's for them. Well, let's not forget, the more we're beaten down physically and mentally, the worse firefighters we become. So we're not only advocating for ourselves and our family, which should be number one before the job even, but we're actually pushing against the very thing that will make us fitter, that will make us be able to think faster on our feet and assess a fire or perform a, you know, a cardiac algorithm or whatever it is. And so we're beating our chest saying it's for them and it's not. It's for them, the people in the cities right. and the counties, which is a complete false economy too because they're bleeding money because all of us are falling apart because of the way that we're worked. No, that's a great point. And I, I, we've had some spirited discussions with a lot of chiefs who I have an incredible amount of respect for. I said, you know, even if you don't want to take the moral view about you're taking care of your firefighter, look at it from a total business sense. The investment you've put in that man or woman who now starts to break down, who starts to get injured, both physically and mentally, and now they're off the job and you're bringing back people on overtime that you're depreciating their value as human beings because you got to force them back because you have no choice. If you put the investment in on a proactive side, and yes, we haven't studied it for a number of years to be able to show exactly what that end savings would be, but financially, there's no doubt in my mind you would save on that and you would have a much more healthy crew, one that would last longer, one that the morale would be better. I mean, there's so many positives about it, but I do think we get into that rigidity of it's got to be this way. And we're not taking enough time to read the studies because they're scary. And it goes, we we have to change the way we do business. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, you're going to have to experiment. And some of it's not going to work. And that research and development is going to cost some money. Yeah, but you're still doing it for your people. And I can't help but think that the men and women who work in your department, if they know you're trying things because you think it will improve their quality of life, yeah, every firefighter is going to find something wrong with everything. It's me included. But they're going to see and go, we're going to give that a try because maybe that will make my home life better. Maybe it'll make me feel better. Maybe I won't have as many nightmares. I've got somebody to talk to so many positives can come out of it. And we're, if we don't do it, we're going to be forced to do it at some point. And the whole model of how many people we send to a call, what their proficiencies are and whatever, we're going to let down the public that we took that oath and swore that we were going to protect. We're not going to be as good as we were because we're just too depleted. The one thing I get asked a lot is, can you send me studies that prove that a 42-hour work week would be healthier than a 56-hour work week? And I just look at them. Did, did you just ask me that? You know, Do you want a study to show that if you stand in the middle of a freeway and you get hit by a car, it's detrimental <laughs> to your anatomy? Like, yeah. where do we draw the line? You know? And I've said <laughs> right. this a lot. The other thing I would also put people is show, send me something that, that justifies the fact that you don't think you're worthy for a 40-hour work week, but the people in the offices are. 
you get up all night. You get up to save lives. They push papers, have, you know, parties in the office with cake and pizza. No one is working, you know, all day, every day. No one, any profession. Look, go see a construction site. They're not working all day. The road diggers not working all day. Everyone has high, you know, times they're working and downtime, as do firefighters. But until someone can explain to me why a firefighter should work 56, but anyone else should work 40, no one can because it's insanity. Right. We've devolved from the, you know, the cards and the Dalmatian and, you know, the steamer. You know, this right. is where we're at now. So this is the problem. And I've talked about this a lot and I don't want to, you know, get on my soapbox and talk again and again and again. But we have told ourselves a myth. We have the most amazing schedule. I work one day on, I have two days off, but we don't. A work week is a, a work day in the civilian world is nine hours with a one hour lunch. So eight hours. We work three hours shifts shoved together. So we work three days on one day off. So we don't work 10 days a month. We work 30 days a month. That's why when you add it up, the math is like, oh, okay, actually, that's kind of shit. <laughs> now, right. 2472 would be a 42-hour work week. It would be an extra 24-hour period because that second day, you just got off shifts. So you worked eight hours when you get off. So you've only got that third day. It's even a day off that you're getting ready to go back on shift. So that extra 24 would be life-changing for so many people, and they'd start to be able to get a little closer to baseline when they come back and, and do the next shift. So this is what's crazy is that no matter what the oh yeah but thing that comes back, it's always nonsense. The reality is the men and women in uniform deserve to have a work week that allows them to thrive and they deserve to be able to go home when they're done with their shift, not be told that they have to stay shift after shift after shift. Well, I think that word courage you brought up, it, it made me think when when it came up and I remember back being, I was a young chief. So this is in the early to mid nineties. And um, our shift the night before had been out on a, on a working fire and had been up most of the night. And the, it just happened to be that the shift was coming on the next day. And we were short, we were small. We we're only five person shift this one tiny station. And a couple of the guys were, were sick, legitimately sick. They'd been sick from their previous tour. They didn't even come back for a fire. And you know if a firefighter doesn't come back for a fire, they're sick. So we, we had two people who had to stay over. And I remember it was lunchtime, and both these guys were dead to the world, in their chairs, watching TV, out cold. And it was came to 1 o'clock, and the lieutenant was like, Chief, can I just leave them in the chairs? I mean, they're shot. I'm like... Absolutely. Well, about an hour later, the village manager came down, happened to walk through the day room, saw two guys asleep in a chair at 1.30 in the afternoon. And all of a sudden, I had an irate boss in my office chewing me out about, what, what do you know what the public would think of this? And I'm like, the general public wasn't out there in those horrible conditions. It, it was a freezing cold night. Those horrible conditions, trying to save somebody's home and best yet, save the neighbor's home have not slept at all. And I go, and do you want one of them working on your dad who's got a cardiac arrest 20 minutes from now, who doesn't know one end of the box from another? I go, I'm okay with them sitting there. And if you got to discipline anybody, you can discipline me. And we have to be okay with realizing that we're, we're dealing with human bodies and what you're putting them through. We, we are all, and I, I don't always like the athlete term because sometimes I think it gets taken in the other direction, but, but you absolutely are training to put your body to a stress point and to be at its maximum when it needs to be to keep yourself, your partner and, and whoever you're responding to safe and realizing what it does to you and being okay with, we're going to replenish. 
sorry, if, if you, you don't like the visuals of it, that's okay. You'll really like the visuals when a great sharp crew shows up at your house in your worst moment. And I think it takes courage as the leader to stand up and go, that's what we're going to do. And if that doesn't work for you, I'm okay. You really need to get another leader because then I can't look them in the eye and go, I value your safety. As a profession, it appears that we've done a terrible job educating the public on what we do, which is then why we have so many issues, especially with these politicians. You obviously have a much you know, more veteran perspective than I do. I only had 14 years total in the fire service. Where have we gone wrong the, to the fact that people are asking, you know, what are we buying you in the grocery store or complaining that there's a crew working out in a local gym or, um, you know, why is there a fire engine on my medical call when, for example, we've done EMS, a lot of us for 50 years now. Right. I think there's the, the fear of look behind the curtain. Um, I think for so long, our profession, well, at least when I started, the, the men who were in my fire station when I first went in, we were doing 2448s. Most of them had second jobs where they worked at least eight hours, if not more, on their two days off, because that's where the income to support their family came from. The fire service did not, I was I was a high school teacher before I went in the fire service. I took a pay cut to go be a firefighter. Um, and so there was kind of this feeling of like, well, you didn't want to tell your neighbor that you had two incomes, even though your neighbor's first income was more than you were making working two jobs. So there was this feeling of like, we need to be shh, very, very quiet about what we do and why, because it's going to sound like we're bragging instead of going out front and showing the public, yeah, this is what we do. And why do we do some of the things that you might look and go, well, I can't go shopping in my job. What, why? I, I know there was a fire chief that ran into this. This is years ago. And um, a lot of pushback. And he sat with the union, said, nope, no problem. I'm not going to give in to that and have people not go to the store because I'm okay with that. But what I want you to do when you go to the store is he goes, I want you to have a card table in the back of the ambulance. And when you go in and have somebody set it outside the store with the card table and offer to give away free pub ed stuff and do blood pressures. So you're only going to be in there for half an hour. Just do that and let's see what happens. And the response was amazing from the people in the public going, holy cow, I saw that fire truck parked there and it always used to bother me, but they, they put my kin on or they took my mother's blood pressure, whatever it was. We were afraid to do it. So that inspired me. We had an open house once and I said, Guys, we're going to do a fashion show. Well, immediately, you know where their heads went. I went, <laughs> relax, not that kind of fashion show. Here's what I want you to do. I said, we're going to get people to come out in the, when the open house is busiest. And first, you're going to walk out in your turnout gear. Then you're going to walk out in just your EMS with a stethoscope. Then you're going to walk out with your dive suit. Then you're going to walk out in a hazmat suit. And so we then we did technical rescue. Must have had 11 different outfits that people walked out in. And when they were all standing out there, we were a very small department. We only had 35 people. I said, every one of the people you see who works here can do all those functions. Now, in your business, is there anybody in your business that can do that many functions that at the, at the snap of a finger has to be able to jump into that function? I said, that's why these people do what they do. That's why they have to have the time off that they have to have. Because many times when they're off, they're also going to school because most of these professions require continuing education. Do you have a continuing education in your job that you'll lose it if you don't do it? They do. 
my medics do, and it's their job. And, and James, it was the reaction, again, simple thing. I mean, but people were like amazed going up, shaking the guy's hands, going, oh, my God, I never knew this. And the, the feedback from the guys was, well, we just thought they knew. I mean, if they call for a dive rescue, who do they think? Somebody from Alabama is coming? I'm like, they don't know. And it's our fault. We need, we need to be okay with blowing our own horn. You know you know how this is. You want to embarrass a firefighter, you give him an award, especially at a board meeting. We don't want to blow our own horn, but you need to do that in order to let people know. Otherwise, if you want to blame somebody, then you got to look in the mirror. Because we just didn't tell them. And I think that's where we've missed the boat. And I think that's also why we're struggling with the recruiting is we're still not telling people all the neat things that we do including then what do we do when we have to handle the things that are difficult and traumatic to take care of ourselves? Absolutely. Yeah, I've had um, some of the professions in the special operations community that aren't known for writing books. Obviously, the SEALs, everyone tongue-in-cheek said every SEAL writes a book. But, you know, you hear this this term, the quiet professional, the silent professional. And absolutely. I mean, obviously, you're not going to want to know the things that you shouldn't know about that group. But there's so much value in the lessons that they learn and some of the storytelling. And now, you know, some of the Delta guys and, and Green Berets and PJs are out, you know, writing about their, you know, stories and being more public because otherwise, like you said, we don't know what they do. And there's a lot of value to us knowing parts of what these people do. And it's the same with the fire service. And I always point this out. Who is the Jocko Willink of the fire service? Yeah. You know what I mean? Who is our spokesperson? Who is the, who is the, the one that's out there? You know, not, we don't have that. So again, if you aren't educating the public, then they just get to make up their own stories. And then that's bolstered by us walking around going, oh my God, it's the best job in the world. You know, we only work eight days a month, <laughs> you know? Right. And so we right. feed into this, this fantasy. Oh yeah. So I think, you know, whether it's the, the people writing books and I'm, I'm writing my second one now and I'm hoping that it's going to get made into a show because I want to, I want to show the real side. And I don't mean that to be doom and gloom, but the grittiness of what it actually is, is like to be a firefighter, the inability to save sometimes, all these things that just don't make it to you know Chicago Fire. And I had Chick on the show, and I know the result of the script isn't always what he's written. You know, It's then taken by Hollywood and, ah, let's, let's make it a happy ending kind of thing. So, you know, where is the representation? We've got Ladder 49, we've got Only the Brave, we've got a handful of, of shows that kind of touch on it a little bit. But we as a profession, individually and nationally, need to do a much better job of educating. Like you said, not just to the public understands what we do, but the real recruits, the real candidates can see this is the good, this is the kind of shit side. You know, are you ready? Let's go. Right. No, and I think the... Um one of the things that I run across that's interesting to me is, do you know who does sometimes the best job of their own advertising are volunteer fire departments, not your career organizations. Ones who run, uh, God bless them, who have a $5,000 budget and that includes everything that they're going to have for the entire year and might run 25 calls a year, but they depend on the community to fund them and they fill the community in on exactly what they're trained to do, how many hours they train, what they train on. And the other thing they do that's, that's enlightening to me is they tell them the truth. Do you know, if you, get, if you call at three o'clock in the afternoon, we only have two people in town who are able to come back to go out with that crew because all of the rest of us are working out of the community. 
So just realize that that's what's happening. Do you think if you work from home now, you might be available to come in and would you like to join our special team? Or And they've really struggled for the last 15 years on recruiting and retention, but they're still holding their own because the community needs to know. I, I had a chief who taught me very early in my career. He said, your job is to tell the village board what they don't want to hear, not what they do want to hear. If you really believe your staffing is too short, if you believe your response time now has gotten impacted by traffic or whatever, you need to make a report and not a, there's a dead baby in the road report. Details, statistics, do your research and say you get to make the ultimate decision on what is the quality of care we provide. I get that. I don't, I don't have the budget strings. But if I don't tell you what we struggle with and where we need to go, then that's on me. Because if I'm a village board member and that comes up at some point, I'm going to go, excuse me, sir, you've been in the fire service for 30 years. You've been our chief for 15 and you never told me that your people struggle with from sleep deprivation. Maybe you should have told me that. And we have to sometimes believe in those folks to do the right thing too. And so I, I think when leaders get, they can also get pigeonholed and told, well, you, none of you care about us. I don't think that's true either. I think we have to educate them and then give them a chance to care. And I think sometimes we don't do that. Well, I think another thing that I see when it comes to you know the, the, the politician side as well is the tax cuts. Like when has oh, anyone yeah. ever explained to a member of public that when we cut this tax, you know, that results in a minimum, you know, lower staffing or even a browning out or a closing of a station that, you know, uh, or, yeah. So the, so the tax are being cut, but the people aren't getting money back. You know, so right. as as the delivery of so what I'm trying to say is as the delivery of service diminishes, the public aren't getting a refund. Oh, we're going to give you crappier service, but here's you know five grand back this year. They're not. So right. they're not educated on the impact of some of these political decisions too. And if a family knew, or if it's say a, you know a community knew that by making this cut, the nearest fire engine or rescue might be. 10 miles away now instead of five, that would change the way they think completely. That would change the way they vote. But again, we don't do a good job of explaining to people nationally, I would argue, of the, you know, the the life safety impact of some of these budget decisions. You know, so I think that's another area is really getting people to understand that, as you said, like we're jack of all trades, master of none. If you call 911 or 999 in England or you know what all the other numbers and the people you expect to come don't come your children are going to die. I don't think there's anything more, you know, powerful than really storytelling and illustrating that point. Right. And and I think that when I've seen referendums go out um one of the fears I'll see when it doesn't look like they've educated about okay if this doesn't pass well, what's going to be the downside is, well, we don't want to be accused that we're trying to scare people. So, well, you're not scaring them if you tell them the truth. If you're lying about it and trying to get them to vote because you want to scare them, then yeah, you shouldn't even be in our business. But telling them up front, because nobody, me included, sitting in that booth going, oh my God, another tax hike for what? We got to give you the for what. And we also have to tell you then, we didn't just walk in here because we're looking for more toys and we're looking for more people to fill a building. We're looking for it because we've identified a risk that we can't handle and we need the resources to do that. And then you leave it to them. But most people just look at it when they see a, a referendum for a fire station and go, no, we got enough for that. Well, 
that's because you haven't told them what happens if you don't. Absolutely. Well, I want to circle back to 2023 then. I know, you know, you had some, you know, some pretty traumatic issues. And for people listening to episode, uh, what I say it was 2266 and then 676, if they heard that one as well, um, you know, they'll know all the trauma that you had personally, obviously some of the calls that you had through your career. Um, talk to me about last year, because obviously there's, there's a couple of issues specifically that, uh, you know, hit you pretty, pretty hard for two different reasons. Yeah. I'll, um, I'll start with one that, um, I would have never believed would have happened. So I retired in, in January of 2021. I had the honor to work for two different fire departments, Hinsdale fire department and Western Springs. And I worked with some of the best men and women out there. I, I, I was incredibly blessed. I always said I would have liked to have been the chief of a large department. I had two small departments and found that it was a gift because I got to know everybody and got to know their families and, and was the recipient of that support from both organizations. It, when Sean was sick and passed and then when Eileen was sick and passed. But on July the 5th of this past year, my middle son, Patrick, and my daughter-in-law, Abby, and my my two granddaughters, the, the absolute best things that have ever happened to me, Caroline and Maeve, um, only live about 20 or 25 minutes away from me. And I got a call from my son. There was a big storm coming through, thunderstorm, and uh, about 6.30 in the evening. And uh, so dad, he goes, the lightning hit, and the, there's a power line down, uh, and it's arcing between the two garages. Um, what, what what should we do? And I go, did you call 911? He said, yeah. I said, well, don't go outside. Stay in the house. Said, unless you smell smoke. And as I'm saying it, I'm praying, I'm going, please don't arc towards their home. Well, it did. And a few minutes later, he called and said, yeah, it smells like smoke. I think the garage is on fire. And there was a knock at the door and it was the firefighters who had arrived that were evacuating them. And what had happened was it was a primary line that came down between could have gone either way to their garage or another, ended up hitting their attached garage electrified the garage, ran up into the soffit, and literally electrified the whole home. At one point, the gutters are blowing off. So the responding units could not make entry until the electric company came to kill the power. And I've had a couple of those fires in my career as an incident commander, and there is no worse feeling than standing there with 20 or 30 people willing to go to work, going to do whatever they want, and the family watching you all stand there because there's nothing you can do. So I get, I get the call now for the first time in my life, I'm responding in, we joke in our area. A lot of times when fire chiefs retire, all of a sudden they have more scanners and more radios than they ever had in their entire life. <laughs> and they chase fires. Um, I have not done that. This was the first fire that had come in since I retired that was like, I need to go. So what was my first reaction? I'm downstairs in my basement right here behind me over my shoulders is the closet. And in that closet was my bunker coat that I was given when I retired, um, wrapped in plastic up on the top shelf. And I hung up the phone and I ran down the stairs and I tore the plastic open and I pulled the bunker coat out. Now I did it for, in my mind, I'm never going to get past the security line with the police because I don't have lights and sirens. I got a private vehicle. I don't have, a, I don't have any my gear anymore. This might at least get me through the lines. I believe that was part of it. I also believe the other part of it was that was my, I was going back to my cape. Like, this is going to help. How the hell, who knows, but it's going to help. So I'm driving there now 
no radio, so I have no idea where this is going. Have they knocked it? Have they not knocked it? I'm, I'm literally on my Bluetooth calling every chief that I know responds to that on a mutual aid, and I can't get an answer, which is not a good sign. I pull around. My son had texted me and said, Dad, you're not going to get close to the house because the storm was so bad. The streets were flooded. You're going to have to park at least a block away. And I remember I turned on the block, and so I could see at the end of the block their home. And I took one look, and I went, oh, my God, it's gone. And they were just going to the roof at that point. So it's probably 25, 30 minutes into the incident before they're even starting to go put water on the fire. It had run the whole roof line. It was down into the first floor. Um, and I walked up, first found my son and my daughter-in-law, and, uh, and there is absolutely nothing you can say at that moment other than I'm so glad you got out. My two granddaughters, thank goodness, were at, were at a relative's house, so they didn't go through the trauma of it. But I said, let me go find out where things are at. So I walk up to the two chiefs, that I, both of whom I've known for 20 years. And as I walk up, they turn around and go, well, you finally started to chase fires. And I went, no. I go, that's my son's house. And the one chief looked at me and said, Oh my God, Pat, he told me his dad was a firefighter. He didn't say it was you. I go, so where are we at? And so they gave me a rundown and said, hey, if there's anything you need to do or feel like you want to do here, you just you just let us know. We'll hand you a radio. And I go, it hit me at that moment. And ironically, everybody there, all the, all the white coats, and there were loads of them, all had yellow reflective trim. My coat, because it's an old, old coat, has red reflective trim. And in the still pictures afterwards that somebody showed me said, we could tell you were wearing your cape. And I went back to my car and I took my coat off because I'm like, I can't do anything. And I'm thinking like, what can I do? And it's like, I really think it was up above whispering to me, you just need to be their dad. And I went over and just hugged them and cried and watched as these guys just did a remarkable job to save what they could. And, and I watched the care they provided to them, just going back and checking on them and filling them in where things were at and why they were doing what they were doing. And then taking them through that horrible walkthrough afterwards where I, things are, toys are floating and clothes are all damaged. And you see a crib that's full of the plaster that's come down from pulling the ceiling. All that stuff that I'd seen loads of times in my 40-year career, but none under these circumstances. And I left feeling so empty like all those years, and there was nothing I could do. And I had to reframe, okay, yeah, there is something you can do. Now you've got to do something going forward to help them with the process, and, what they're, and you just need to be there. And if that's all you can do, that's okay, because right now there's no other choice. And for my friends who found out about it later, in fact, a number of them who saw something through social media called me with this very hesitant voice because they thought it was my house that burned down. And they were like, oh man, this guy, this, this guy, he's got the biggest black cloud over his head. And you have to have that conversation where you go, well, it's kind of a good news, bad news. The good news, I guess, is it wasn't my house. The bad news is I wish it was my house because it was my son's. And trying to rebuild through the summer and watching them go through the whole insurance process because we 
respond and we do the best we can in that acute situation and we leave it as good we can and then we leave. And we don't really see the other trauma that goes on as they try to rebuild their lives. Whether you go to somebody and you, you get there and their, their parent is deceased or you have a house fire where they lose everything, we're gone. I now live through watching them go through the rest of this and their resiliency, um, their courage, we talked about that earlier, was so inspiring to me that it kept me going because they were not going to let this beat them. They were pleased their girls hadn't gone through the trauma. So trying to explain to a four-year-old, we're not going to be living here for a while, but you're going to get to go back. And when you do, you're going to get to pick the color. We're going to paint your room. We're going to reframing it even through all the loss they had gone through. I was like, hey, I, I got nothing to complain about here. I just need to go. Is there anything else that I can do? And and the other thing that came out of it that was powerful, and, and I struggle sometimes with, and we had this discussion before we started, like people will always ask me, okay, you convinced me to take the cake off. How, how do you put it back on again? Whatever inspires you when you go through a trauma to want to get back in the ring, whether that's that's life in general or it's in our profession. That night, literally on the front lawn, while it's pouring, they had neighbors come over, and it's a young family neighborhood. Neighbors come over who said, our parents have summer homes in Indiana or Wisconsin or whatever. We're going to pack up our car right now, and we're going to drive up there for a couple of weeks. Just go into our house till you get yourself settled. Do you see where I saw the best of humanity come out that night in the worst situation? And it made me feel like, yeah, Cape ain't working for me. But that guy and that girl, they've got the cape on because they've seen a trauma and they can do something about it. And just that support um, was incredibly powerful. And so we, we've made our way through that. We had a very nice Christmas. They're in a, ironically, they're in a home renting in the next community over from where their home was in Western Springs, where I was the fire chief. So they're, they're, they're kind of known that they're in the neighborhood and, uh, and people have been phenomenal there. And by the end of summer, they'll be back in their home and they'll be living in a a wonderful neighborhood again in the Grange Park that they had before. But it's the journey and uh, the bumps in the journey, something I would never would have anticipated being touched directly. So that was the first one. Well, just to kind of reply to that one, I think it mirrors what I've talked about somewhat recently, which is the, again, we were saying what is not discussed when we're you know told about the fire service, especially when we have our orientation, and it's the inability to save. And I have just been, you talk about Black Cloud. I have never saved a full arrest in 14 years. I was just that, that shit magnet. Everything that you could die from is what I, you know, the patients that I had from GI bleeds to, you know, aneurysms to all the things. Um, and it just is what it is. And it was interesting as you were standing there, you with the, the coat on, but more so the crew that was on scene, that that cape, when you're when you make a save, when you do the thing that you're known for, is a thing of immense pride. But when you are the paramedic or the firefighter and you can't save that person's child, there's almost an element of shame wearing that cape because everyone at medic school and everyone in fire academy told me if you did A, B, and C, you'd have an outcome D. And here you are now standing in the street and some mother is screaming because their infant just died in your arms. You know, So I think that's a powerful you know, perspective. The other one that occurred um, 
occurred on, on November 1st. And that date is a real special date for me because that was the date um, when Eileen was getting close to making her, her journey to the other side. And, uh, and Sean appeared to her in our room and told her he was going to come get her. So it's always been a very special day for me. And uh, this year it wasn't, uh, or 2023 it wasn't. So my, my niece, um, her 40-year-old husband um, had a massive heart attack um, in the morning and died, uh, leaving behind four kids, um, nine and under. Um, th this guy, Tony, one of the biggest, the irony, one of the biggest hearts of people that you would ever see. Um, just a wonderful husband, a, a great dad, had taken his kids trick-or-treating the night before, um, and the next day is, is gone. And trying to get the courage. Um, I don't know that I thought about in the moment about, okay, I got to find somehow find a cape because I knew I couldn't save her. I knew the pain she was in and going to go through and there was nothing I could do about it, but it was like trying to search for what do you do? How do you, how do you have this conversation? And tremendous support from her family. They were very close family, in-laws, brother-in-laws, everybody was one big family. So they, they had built a phenomenal family unit that really they didn't realize they would need for this kind of event, but they, they were there. And when I finally got a chance to talk to her, I said, we, we, we have a common ground, but we don't. I said, you went through three losses there in those minutes. You lost the love of your life, your spouse, but you also lost the husband of your children, the father of your children, but you lost your best friend too. And I go, people don't realize what it's like that when you grieve, you're grieving almost like in silos. For, for some of your moments, I go, you're gonna be battling through that feeling that, that injustice of we were gonna have 40 years together and I lost my husband. And then you're gonna go into another room that's gonna be, how am I gonna raise these four children? And then you're gonna go in another room like, when I'm, when I'm alone and tired and don't think I can go on, the person I would talk to the most, I, I can't talk directly to them. And I don't think I, I thought I felt really helpless on July 5th standing on that lawn. I think talking to Christina alone in a room and trying to find the right things to say was incredibly difficult. And, and I wrote about it in the book about when you run into that, sometimes the best thing you can do is just hug somebody because you don't have anything verbally to make it better. You just don't. And, and so I squeezed her and just said, these people will be here. They're not going to abandon you. And, and it's really going to suck. And there's nothing else we can do at that point. And she's been amazing. Her family's been amazing going through that. You can imagine going through the holidays, um, her oldest son had a birthday only a couple of weeks afterwards, and she's an inspiration to me, what she's done. Um, she's trying to wear the cape, and I'm sure more times than not feeling like she's she's not doing it, but she's, she's doing amazing, and all the other people around her, her family, the people who love her, her friends, are all trying to do what they can to, to help. But it's just another reality check of, you think you have everything planned out and then something like that happens. And I, I think it wakes everybody up to go, yeah, tomorrow's not promised to everybody. And you really do need to make a point of telling people you love them all the time 
and realizing when you're fortunate, you have it that way, because at some point you may not. And how you adjust to that, um, like I told her, I said, if you get out of bed in the morning, you have made an incredible accomplishment and you need to celebrate that because for this day, that's the gold standard. And eventually, hopefully through help and assistance, you're going to be able to climb a little bit higher. But for right now, the bar is set real low because you, you, you couldn't be up against anything that I can imagine it could be any more difficult than what you're facing. And I'm so proud of her and her family. Am I right in understanding he was a firefighter? No, no, he was not. He was not. Okay, I must have must have misread that. No, though. it was his. his Dennis, his, her brother that? is a firefighter. Okay, that's what it was. Then. Yeah, her brother's okay. a firefighter. My nephew. Right. So, with you know all this trauma that you've had, you know, watching watching your son's house burn down, and then you know losing this loved one as well, and then trying to be there for your niece. What were some of the things that you started leaning into yourself? We talk about putting the cape on. Let's not even think about the cape specifically, just your own self-care and, and all this you know, grief being pulled up from the past as well. I think I had to, first of all, become come face-to-face with limitations. Because um, usually back to when we train the very beginning, it's like there really isn't anything you can't do if you put your mind to it. Well, not true. Uh, if I could bring Tony back, that would have been done November 1st. So what were, what are my limitations? Um, I found myself having flashbacks, found myself having nightmares. Um, and so immediately, like I preach, don't always follow. Um, I called my counselor and said, I need to come in and I need to talk to you. Um, I've had a couple of things happen and I go and I'm not in a good place. And went in and had very frank discussions with her about what was going on. And she's like, yeah, you're reliving it. Because what I didn't mention was November 1st, Tony went to heaven. Well, Eileen's anniversary is November 5th. So it was that loss, watching her pain, having the services, and then reliving the pain of seven, what was seven years ago in in November. And realizing that I needed to still tell myself there were boundaries. You can't bring him back. You can't save the day here. You can't make everybody happy. So do what you can and realize when you're getting too close, because there are plenty of other people who are with her, who are more equipped to do what needs to be done than you are and be okay with that. Don't be helpless. Be her uncle. Be, be there, be available, be comfortable with the uncomfortable, and that's far enough. And then I really leaned into my faith, and she has a tremendous amount of faith, and I'm, I'm so thankful for it. And I, and I told her, I go, there's loads of times through this journey now where you're going to question it. And I go, and that's okay. You, you should question it. But if you didn't have it, if you didn't really believe he was somewhere safe, that that He's going to watch you and he's going to try to take care of you from a different spot. I said, you wouldn't get out of that bed. I said, I wouldn't still be here if I didn't have my faith. And so I I leaned back into that. I talked to the pastor at our church and I said, can you just pray for their family on a regular basis? I don't even know what you can say, but whatever you can do to have somebody up there listening, if they can make their day just a little bit easier, make one of the kids maybe smile to give a little bit of anything at all. I go, I'm all in. Whatever you can get, do it. Um, and that that helped. And then obviously talking to my own family about it, to the people in my inner circle about 
I don't know what to do. And, and getting reinforcement for you doing the best you can, um, that, that was and continues to be very helpful. What you were talking about not having the words, I think that's that's hard as a man, you know, because men are, are wanting to be fixers. But then when you add in yeah. a male firefighter, you know, we're a fixer who fixes, <laughs> you know, it's a double right. whammy. It's it's a compounding effect. That's something that I've I've had to learn is it's OK not to say anything. It's OK to simply just, as you said, either sit down and be there and be quiet with someone and let them talk or you know, just give them a hug and not try and offer a solution of something that can't be fixed, just to simply be right. present and be there with them. Right, right. No, and it was, um, those are the, those are the things I think when we go through in life, whether you're, you're a firefighter or whatever you're dealing with in life, um, when those traumas hit you, first they knock you on your ass. And then it's trying to get back up and figure out what's the first step you take. How do I how do I get back moving forward? Because I can't just stay in this horrific spot. And mo for most of the time, you need help to get out of there. You need somebody to throw you a line, whether it's a counselor or it's a clergy or it's a really good friend or somebody to help pull you just inches forward. And you may not even see or feel the progress until you look back a year later. But somebody's got to intervene because we weren't created to live alone we were created to be part of this team and we forget about that sometimes. And usually when you get hit with that trauma, I think it knocks that team family concept totally out of your head and you need to lean on it even more that there are others who may provide what I just don't have right now. And if you look at it, that if they were in the situation you are, wouldn't you want to try to help? So give them a chance, let them do whatever it is, because that may be the one thing you need that particular day. On a more macro perspective, we, we touched on the pandemic, you know, and then obviously the, the police issue and the, the COVID and now, you know, Ukraine and Palestine, you name it, insert thing here. I've watched the country become very divided deliberately from certain groups, you know, but then even if you look at the fire service, we are very fragmented there's not a lot of communication between departments you know police and fire or county and city or whatever it is how whether within our profession or even nationally how do we rebuild that community and tribalism that we seem to have lost certainly the last eight plus years or so i think part of it is um what used to be a strength probably at least looked at that way by by most of the services were you were always kind of the old joke about, well, okay, the, you know, the, we're going to stop by the firehouse. P policemen are going to come in and they're going to look at your lazy boys and the firemen are going to wonder why you got powdered sugar on your shirt, you know, and the whole nine yards there. And we kidded about that, but we definitely had our pride of our barriers of what, this is my culture, this is your culture, never the two shall match. And I, I always get a kick out of um, sometimes when somebody will recruit me to be a speaker, um, they'll find out that I'm a firefighter and not a police officer. And they'll be they'll say, well, this could be a difficult audience you could be talking to. And I go, why? I said, just because I, I didn't wear that kind of badge. Um, this is a, I'm talking about a human problem, not a fire service problem, not a police problem. It, it's, and so I think we built those walls. So, I mean, you look at FDNY and NYPD and 9-11 and, and the, the discussions afterwards about the lack of communications and, having all these barriers built that you couldn't get through to each other and the angst that that 
created in, in I've talked to some people from FDNY and this is, so this isn't, you know, gospel at all, but it's like, there's still so much frustration about them being able to communicate. And that's certainly not just for them. That goes, that goes across the country, even little rural departments that, well, we, we don't really respond with them. Well, why not? Well, some chief 40 years ago pissed off the people in our organization. So we don't, we don't go. It's like, you, you gotta be kidding me, right? Like we, we need, we need to drop those and realize we're all on the team, the same team, that's the human team, the part of the human element. And so working to build each other's team as opposed to making mine better than yours is where I think we need to go. And so more conferences and, and education where we meet together. So not so much the educate, the formal education you're getting is going to be the most important, but the networking. Hey, my brother-in-law, God rest his soul, Bob, passed away from ALS. And we always used to kid about your, I could never do your job. He would say, I would say to him, and he'd go, but I think I could do yours. And I said, why is that? And he goes, because I have to do mine by myself. And he goes, you're right. You'd never last five minutes alone in a squad car by yourself. But he goes, I really like being part of a team. So I think I could. And I think that's right. And when we would talk about the similarities of what we went through, 90% of it was the same, 10% kind of unique to each profession. But we were afraid to talk about that because you certainly didn't want some police officer to know that you thought like he did because there might be something wrong with him. Then. I mean, so so getting groups together and breaking down those walls that we, we don't, it's not your territory and my territory, it's our territory. And if we don't have each other's backs, who will? Who's going to understand looking at the face of of police officers at attention when a coffin goes by about a police officer who's been killed in the line of duty. We know what that feels like, but well, that's no different. So why are we not reaching out so that we, we're responding, so that we're going to those funerals, so that we're showing support, that we're, we're trying to promote training that brings all of the professions together. Some of the best places I've gone to speak that were the most, I shouldn't say best, but were to me the most fulfilling was when the audience was a mixed audience. It was fire, it was EMS, it was police, it was dispatchers, it was prison guards, it was you name it. And they were all invited because they were seen as the first responding profession. You help people who are in trouble, you protect the community. Okay, well then it's one common voice, it's a lot easier to discern the message than if I gotta get it translated through the firewall, the police wall, the dispatch wall. And I think, but that's a concerted effort back to what we talked about with the educating the public and educating elected officials about a work day. And, we, it gets pushed way down. Yeah, that's a good idea. We'll do that someday. And then it's like saying you're going to get together with your favorite couple and realizing a year has gone by and you're in a wake together and you never got together. If you don't make a point of it and make it formal and have the leadership set up to do that, it's just going to keep get a can kicked down the alley. Absolutely. Well, just as a side tangent, you mentioned Bob with ALS. Did he play football when he was younger? Basketball player. Oh, basketball. So not because it just seemed yeah. like there was a correlation between head trauma and ALS later in life. Right. I have read. I read some of that. No, he was. He was a um, really good basketball player, good athlete, and just noticed that he had a numbness in his hand. Now his his life. Another one. Talk about inspiring. Like my niece. Um, he was diagnosed and for nine years fought ALS. He worked as a police sergeant. He was due to be promoted to deputy chief. Told the chief. I can't take it because I don't know how long I'm going to be here and how, how I'm going to be. Um, 
he, one vow that he had, I am never going to spend a day in a wheelchair or in a hospital bed. His, so for nine years, he battled ALS. He was in the beginning still mobile. He started to lose the use of an arm and another hand, and but still could. His family was amazing. The Madden family, his, his wife, Bowie, and his kids, um, all amazing. Would help him to bed and everything. And finally, it had gotten really, really bad. His choking reflex was really difficult. He had just retired from the police department. His police chief was amazing in terms of supporting him so he could, went to work every day. And finally, his wife, Bowie, was like, Bob, we, it's just too hard now to handle you. We're going to have to get a wheelchair and we're going to get a, a hospital bed. And it's going to come on Monday. And I'm sorry, but it's something we need to do. We we'll put it in the living room. And so Eileen and I went over there that Sunday. And he was still in rare form. I made some crack about police versus fire, and he, he kicked me from the lazy boy. He was in. <laughs> and uh, great, great. Next morning at six o'clock in the morning, we get a phone call that he's passed. The morning, the bed and the wheelchair were supposed to be delivered. Now his wife Bowie would go for a run in the morning. That was her. That was what kept her mental help. And he was awake, and she kissed him goodbye before she left. And when she came back, he had gone to heaven. And one of the first people she called was my wife, Eileen, who was, her and Bob were like this. And when we got there, there was no look of fear on his face, but there was a look of determination. And I knew that look from all those years I had known him. And I really believe in that time she was gone, he had a discussion with somebody on the other side and said, for nine years, I have never I never heard him complain. I have never complained about this. I told you if you're going to give this horrible illness to somebody in my family, give it to me. And you did. But I am not going in that wheelchair and I am not going in that bed. So you need to get me the hell out of here before my wife comes back and watches me pass. And I, I can't wait to get to heaven to find out if he goes, typical, you were wrong. But I want to be able to have that conversation because I believe it. He he, had, he was done fighting and he was not going to go. It's an amazing story because I don't believe in coincidences. No coincidence that he passed that morning before that delivery came. So that truck showed up and that stuff went back and he never spent a day in either one of those. Amazing story. Amazing man. Oh, here's the other part that'll make you smile. So it's a very sad story. Except, So he had lost, really was losing the ability to write. Every year on their wedding anniversary, Bowie gets flowers and a handwritten card from him. Now that's continued over the past decade. So he wrote those, he set up with his son to make sure here's what you need in order to get the flowers for mom, make sure that happens. She lives for that day to get that handwritten note from him. And I, I will tell you, Bob was not Mr. Romantic and he'd be the first one to tell you that. Most romantic thing I've heard about in my life. I always on our anniversary will go, hey, I'm anxious. I'm anxious. I'm not even getting anything today. Um, powerful how the human spirit, that resiliency, that belief can carry you um, and the love of other people can keep you in a traumatic situation, inspired to say, I'm going to give this a shot for one more day. And uh, yeah, he's another one that will always be an inspiration to me. Beautiful story. I'm so glad I asked now. That was incredible. Yeah, thank you. That was that I forget about that sometimes and it's when I think of it it makes me smile. Absolutely.
Well, I think when we spoke last was when you'd, you'd written the book. Um, so taking the cape off. What is great is I think since then you and I went back and forth with your audiobook um, experience because right. I had to do that for mine and it was it was like pulling teeth. I hated it. It was just funny because yes. I talk on a microphone for a living now, but when you have to just read, it was brutal. Oh, yeah. um, but there's another interesting story that starts in Ireland. Talk to me about the documentary. Yeah, this is another uh, no 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 such thing as a coincidence. So. Eileen and I used to like, like to go on St. Patrick's Day. We'd always try and find a, a local pub that had a real band from Ireland. It's always funny. You you can go in any neighborhood and there'll be five Irish pubs and you walk in and and Aerosmith is playing or Deep Purple on St. Patrick's <laughs> Day. It's not quite what I was looking for. So um, found a place called the Irish Legend that we used to go to and really enjoy Irish music. So um the year she was sick in 2016, we went, she was undergoing chemo. So we went out on St. Patrick's Day to a very little quiet pub that we knew that there weren't going to be many people in so we could have a toast with family and friends because unfortunately we knew, I don't think I acknowledged it that day in my head, but I knew this would be the last St. Patrick's Day I would have her. But we couldn't go back there because there were just too many people and chance of infection. So we missed it. The following year in 2017, when it was St. Patrick's Day, um, a number of friends from the firehouse couples we used to go to were like, well, we're, we're going to the legend. And I'm like, not going. Like, what do you mean you're not going? I go, can't, I can't go there without her. I just can't do it. They're like, well, just, just try it for a little while. She would want you to go. I go, yeah, I know what she'd want. I go, I, I, I don't think it's good for me. I don't think I should go. 30 minutes. Just give us 30 minutes and then you can. Okay, fine. So I go, the great band from, from Ireland is in there. They're playing and I'm not even conscious. I'm just like, Okay, is it 28 minutes yet? Is it 24 minutes yet? Is it what, what am I getting out of here? And all I could think about was the times that we had spent there and how now she wasn't. And they took happened to take a break like 20 minutes in. So I go, well, okay, that's 30 minutes. I'm going. They're like, no, 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 no. I had 30 minutes of playing. They didn't play for 30 minutes. And the one gentleman who was who was the lead singer said when he took a break, he mentioned uh yeah, he goes, I want to introduce the guys in the band. So he introduced the other four guys and uh, said, yeah, I'm, I'm considered the outcast, not the true Irishman. And he had a brogue that was thick as could be. And I'm thinking, the heck's he talking about? So I went up there. Don't know what motivated me to go up there. I went up there and I introduced myself and I said, I got to ask you. I said, you got this great brogue. What do you mean you're not an Irishman? He said, well, I was born in New York. He said, and when I was 10 years old, my dad was a construction worker and he was killed in a construction accident. So my mom and myself and my two younger brothers, she was from Ireland. Um, there was no family really here in the States to lean on, a lot of family there. So she brought us back to Ireland and we were raised there. So there's my bro, but you know, I'm, I'm not naturally born there. And these guys remind me of it all the time, kind of a big joke. And I said, well, my, I said, my, both my parents were born in Ireland. I said, do you ever think about your dad, what he what he's seen you do, what you what you missed. And uh, I said, all the time. I said, I, I hope he's proud and I hope he's watching. So I lost my dad. I said he was an Irish hurler. I, I said, when I was 14, and I go, I, I wonder all the time too, did you see me do this? Did you see me get married? Do you see your grandkids? Uh, I said, I hope so too. Well, the other guys in the band heard me talk about hurling. They didn't really hear the story and said, oh, your dad was a hurler. Oh my goodness, where, where did he, who did he play for? Blah, 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 blah. And 
The lead singer said, yeah, he goes, he, like me, he lost his dad when he was 14. Well, by now I've been up there for like 10 minutes. You know, I'm supposed to be on this quick break. And one of the wives who was sitting at the table got concerned because she saw these guys around me. I was like, oh, no, he must be telling this story about Eileen. So he, she starts to get up to come up. And uh, I said, yeah, I said, I used to come here with my wife. I said, she passed away a couple months ago. And uh, they were like, oh, my goodness. And I told them a little bit about the story. And I, I said, I'm sure she's listening and you guys are doing great. And uh, the, the wife comes up. Now she thinks I've told them about Sean. So she comes up, hey, guys, how you doing? Uh, they're like, oh, well, this great guy. We've been we having a story, but sad about his loss. She said, yeah, you know, horrible to have to bury your child. And they're like, what? And he look, they looked at me and he said, you, you buried your child too? And uh, I said, yeah, now she's mortified because she realizes that, you know, that's not what we were talking about. So we talk about that. Now, you can imagine if you were sitting in the audience with your wife, like, who is this goof? Is he a groupie up there? What's I mean, there's a 20-minute <laughs> break. I came here to listen to them sing, and, um, and they wanted to know more. And so I did. I told some of them that what we were doing and that we were going to be going to Ireland in March. Uh, I'm sorry, in May, uh, to actually spread Eileen's ashes. And a couple of guys in the band said, what date are you coming? We're, we're, we're going to come greet you guys when you come with your family. So that night when we landed in Dublin, one of them drove 90 minutes one way to meet us in the pub and have a cup of coffee and turn around and drive back because he knew how difficult this trip was. The other, the other gentleman lived in, in, uh, in Dublin. So now I stayed in touch with those guys over the years. So fast forward to a year ago, April, I get a phone call from Noel, who was one of the, the two gentlemen. He was the gentleman who drove 90 minutes that night. And he said, um, hey, I'm thinking about doing something. And he, great songwriters, had written two children's books, the bus driver. I said, what are you going to do? He said, um, I'll make a documentary. Wow. Um, well, I can't imagine you not being successful in anything you do, but that's a lot of, a lot goes into that. Yeah, I've been taking classes and um, something I really want to do. And I go, well, that's great. I go, what are you going to do it on? He goes, I'm going to do it on your book. I went, what? You're doing it on my book? I go, how are you going to do that? He goes, I'm not sure yet. He said, but I had a dream. I go, okay, what, what was the dream? He said, your son and your wife came to me in the dream and said, you're supposed to do the documentary on his book. Well, now I'm, I can't answer him, right? I'm, I'm like, I'm sobbing. And I'm like, are you sure? And he said, I've never been more sure about anything. This is what I'm supposed to do. So, okay. I go, you know how it is. She told me to write the book. I go, if she told you, you better get on it. You better get on it. And so over the next few months, we put together a program where he was going to come to the States in, in fall and interview Eileen's friends, two of Sean's best friends from high school, people who worked with me to find out what was, did they notice the impact of Sean's journey and Eileen's journey on me as a leader and things like that. But he said, when you come to Ireland in, in May, I want to, I want, we're going to end up that we do um, interviews. So where are we going to do the interviews at? He said, well, your dad's house is still remaining. And now this is where I'm, I'm going to chronologically jump for a second. So this is actually in 2019. In 17, when I had gone over there to, to bury your ashes, the last day I was there, it was with all my cousins and all of them are women. And at the end of this big dinner, they're like, we have a surprise for you. And a gentleman walked in. I go, who's that? They go, it's your cousin. So no, I don't have any male cousins. They go, yeah, you do. 
that's on your dad's side. Never knew this gentleman existed, didn't know anything about him. And he came up and gave me a big hug and he said, I live on your dad's farm and your dad's house is still standing. You need to come see it. And I said, I can't. I go, I'm leaving tomorrow morning. If I ever come back, I will. So now we jump to 19 and Noel tells me, yeah, I talked to your cousin. We're going to rig up so we have electricity and everything in there. And we're going to do your interview sitting in your dad's living room. I'm like, what? So I go to Ireland, we go to his house, we pull up in front of it and it's this old beat up, but it's cement cinder block building that's still standing. And, and I, I almost couldn't get out of the car and I got out. He said, come on, I want to take you around the back before you go in. And my cousin took me around the back and there's a big three by three concrete pad, almost like a pool that was set up behind the house. And I, I said, okay, what's this? And he said, this is for to catch the rainwater. And my grandmother, your grandmother would make, they would make cooking and they would wash clothes out of here. And I said, oh, he said, put your hands on it. So I, I did. And he said, that's the last thing your dad built before he came to Ireland. I mean, before he came to the States, he said, he built that with his hands, no forms. He just took the concrete and molded all of that. So he said, keep your hands on there because he goes, you're touching his hands. And it was like, I had this chill go through me and I'm like, okay, now you expect me to go in the house and have an interview? Are you kidding me? And um, They open the door and the fireplace is on and there's a kittle hanging in there and there's a chair sitting there with a stool. And I'm like, and I walked in and I tears just streamed down my face. I'm like, oh my God, he's here. Like, this is where he grew up. This is where it all started. And so Noel got me composed and we did, did the interview and was amazing. I walked out of there and then my dad had, my grandfather, my dad's dad, had taken his life when my dad was 18. He hung himself in the barn and my dad found him and had to cut him down. And I always wondered when I was growing up, my dad was very distant. Never really told me he loved me. I never saw him put his arm around my mom or hold her hand, but I knew he loved me and I knew he loved her. And then I realized when I was told this story when I was 35, my mom told me, I'm like, no wonder. So he got no counseling. It was the worst sin you could do in Ireland was to take your life. My grandfather was buried in a grave with no headstone. His name was removed from the church book. And my dad had to go through that. And so he was never going to get close to anybody ever again, even the people that he truly loved. And I said to my cousin, where's the barn? And he said, oh, come on with me. We went around the back and just beautiful, very nice barn. And I go, no, is, is there another barn here? And he said, well, yeah, the old barn, but we don't use it anymore. And I go, can I go into that barn? And he said, well, sure. And we walked around the back and there was this old dilapidated barn where the roof was only about probably 10 foot high. And I pushed the door open and I turned to my right and you saw all the, um, um, what am I trying to think of? Um, all the timbers, everything that made up the roof structure, all of them were only maybe about seven feet off the, off the ground. And when I looked to my right, it was as if I was my dad again and I had a quick mental picture of somebody hanging there. The first fatal call I ever went on was a mom who took her life, then I cut her down. And all of a sudden it was like, he was with me 
and it was his dad. And like, almost like somebody had loaded a flash drive in my brain and everything that he had been through, every emotion and things he had fought all loaded. And I went, oh my God. I go, now I get it, dad. I get it. And I stopped and I froze. And my cousin was like, well, did you want to go in here for some reason? And I said, don't you know? He said, don't I know what? I said, well, our grandfather, I said, he, he took his life, right? My dad's dad took his life. He goes, yeah. I go, did you know how he did it? And he went, no, we were never told. And I went, oh my God. I go, he did it in here. And he was like, what? He had never heard the story. And I backed out of there and I walked out and I remember I was kind of numb and I walked to the car and I got in it with Noel and we drove to the cemetery and did some other shots later. And I told Noel, I go, if this documentary never gets made, this is the reason I was supposed to come back here. I go, because the circle is now complete. I felt my dad in that house. I felt his pain in that barn. And I realized this mission I've been on about telling people that mental illness is not a stigma or has a stigma. It is not a character weakness or a deficiency. And you can't look at it that way. My poor grandfather was ill enough that he took his life and what it did to my dad. And now Sean sees my dad in heaven. And then Sean comes to Eileen. It's the full circle. I'm finally whole and I owe you for doing this. Well, that didn't stop him. He came to the States and did all these interviews and put together an amazing documentary that He's, he finished this past November and now it's out at some film festivals to be viewed and see. And it doesn't really matter about any of that. If one person gets something out of it, it'll be amazing. And his name is Noel Joyce. And if nothing else, he completed a circle for me that I will owe him for the rest of my life because I got my dad back for a little while and it was, it was powerful. Amazing, actually. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because I'm writing my second book at the moment and it's about multi-generational trauma and it's going to start present day and it's going to go back in time. Um, and this is just it. You know, when you yeah. look at the struggles that your father had, you know, the struggles that then, you know, that you had and then Sean had, I mean, if you reverse engineer, you know, it's not absolute, right. but there's elements, you know, and these are dominoes. And so by understanding this this part, you can start to maybe push against that domino so it doesn't go to your kids and their kids, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So it's so powerful right. hearing not only, you know, the kind of grief journey and the mental health side, but even getting to really understand, you know, two, three generations back yourself and, and, and literally live it for a second, be there and get that flash and just have that immediate understanding of the pain that two generations ago really endured. I always, people will sometimes ask me, well, you've got a lot of strong faith. So that means that you believe you got a lot of relatives and people who love you on the other side. And I'm like, yeah. They go, why do you think it was your dad that Sean saw? Why him in particular? Once I went to Ireland, I knew, because there was the person who sat there when he almost lost his life the first time, who sat there and went, I get it, John. I get the pain. I saw the pain. So you need to go back. And that's why the next time he didn't have to stay, he got to go back there. And no doubt in my mind, exactly what you said. And that was Noel's, it's funny, I didn't even tell you that, but you got it. That was what he figured out about the message was, I need to connect this journey across the ocean of pain and this mental health and how it's progressed and then turn it around and bring it back home and unite you and your dad, this 
Irishman that comes to the States or an Irish American comes back and makes the journey. And it really is about that multi-generational and realize this is the disease that we should have had on our radar just as if, I mean, I because my dad died of stomach cancer, I've had more colonoscopies than probably anybody in the world. And most of the nurses in Illinois know what my butt looks like. And it hasn't gotten any better with age. And But we're aware of it because we know that there's a, there's a chance. If only we had known, um, it wouldn't have saved Sean's life, but it would have probably made it more on my radar when he first got sick instead of me going, no, that, that that's just a stage he'll grow out of. Yeah. I mean, this is it. It's just tools in the toolbox. It's not saying, like you said, it was an absolute, but it's another layer of understanding. You know, I think it's it's the right. same with, uh, I have a lot of conversations with people these days about anything from addiction to, you know, being part of a gang, whatever it is. And we look at it as, which is kind of such an ironic perspective to have. A lot of these faiths come from kindness and compassion and people spend, you know, whatever day of the week it is, and then they come out and then extremely judgmental and you know unempathetic so the more we understand the layers of these human elements i would like to think that the more compassion we as a community are going to start showing people who are struggling whether that's you know again through some sort of crime because that's all they knew it's all they grew up around or whether it's mental health or addiction or obesity or whatever it is that that you know there's there's a story and i and i talk about this a lot now we were all babies once we were all a blank canvas and then life happened and obviously as we said epigenetics sometimes we carried previous lives as we were first born so the more we understand the more tools we have to to look at the whole human being the higher the chance we can help people heal and 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 thrive in their life and i think too when you when you try to understand where somebody else has come from and you don't do the judgment it almost frees you up a little bit to do it for yourself because you get it. Where before, when you're, if you're too quick to judge, that's when that shame part comes in about yourself going, well, I should have known better. I should have handled this better. I'm the one that should have fixed this. Why did I do that or that? And now you realize I always, and I, it's one of the things I, I have told to my niece, you're going to learn to write yourself permission slips. And it's okay to write the permission slip that, I can't go to that event or I need to leave early or today's just going to be a bad day because you realize other people who are in similar situations, you certainly would be the first one to hand them that pad and go, I'll just start writing them for you because you need to take care of yourself and you need to be okay with who you are and love yourself. And then it's a whole lot easier to love other people once you figured out that you're probably not such a bad soul. Yeah. Yeah. Which circles around again to first responders advocating for their own wellness. You know, we right. do so much for other people. Write yourself a permission slip that will benefit you and your family. Absolutely. Right. Beautiful. All right. Well, I want to round this off. Firstly, the documentary. Is there a title and where can people start looking for it, you know, hoping that it's going to come to, to their area or their stream? Well, it, it's called it's called Taking the Cape Off. I said so it was easy enough. There wasn't a whole lot of extra creativity that went into it. Um and right now, the, the way I understand it is when it's being viewed by festivals, it's not out for public viewing. Um, I know Noel has looked at some other um, YouTube is probably where it'll go when it when it does come out. Um, and we will definitely let people know when that's going to occur. That could happen in the next month or two. It depends on when it runs this, the cycles. And I'm, I'm not up to speed on, I said, that's your thing. This is your thing you get credit for. I just was the mouth and you did all the work. Um, 
And but I ex expect it probably by the middle of next year it'll be available on YouTube for people to see. And I'll certainly let you know when that when that occurs. Um, it's long. I, th I think that's probably one of the challenges of it. It's ninety minutes, um, and so people's attention span is something that we we worried about. And but you just couldn't get it in in any shorter of amount of time to build both Eileen and Sean's legacy and. Uh, People who've seen it, the ones who were allowed to see it are the people who were interviewed uh, on a secure link. And uh, many of them watched it with their significant others who did not know uh, what their involvement was with their husband or wife. And then what my story was in terms of saying it and doing it. Um, and they all were like, boy, that was powerful. So I'm, I'm hoping that that's what people will, uh, will be impacted. At least one person, if they walk away going, I got a better understanding and I, I'm going to do a little bit about that to help myself or somebody else. We're good to go. Well, first, the other thing, 90 minutes is that long. The first interview we did was two and a half hours. So there we go. Yeah. People loved it. So, that, yeah. so just to appease that fear. Uh, secondly, the book, you have obviously the, the, you know, the paper version, the digital version, and now the audio book as well. Where can people find that? So you can find it on Amazon. Uh, you can find it on Barnes and Noble. Amazon's probably the easiest play. Um, there's also a direct link on, on my webpage, patrickjkenny.com, that you can go to and it'll take you to it. Also, um, people have just been amazing. And I, the Audible book, if I go to speak somewhere and somebody says they're going to order that, I always ask them to send me an email afterwards. Because I literally, as you know, you have to listen to like four minutes of it before it goes to Audible for them to put on. I've never listened to more than the first four minutes because I listened to it and went, oh, my God, this is terrible. <laughs> Um, so I always wait to get their feedback and they've been very kind in, in what they've sent back. So I'm like, as long as you got something coherent out of it, I'm good. Absolutely. Well, you had a lot of great feedback from the audiobook as well. I remember. So obviously you did a good job. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's been, been that's been re more rewarding than I thought it would be. Well, Pat, I want to thank you. Third conversation, a great conversation. Again, I think if people listen to the original, you know, chat that we had and and heard the you know the the story of eileen and sean and all the other things that we discussed adding on this i mean obviously there's a part two as well but this conversation has been so powerful knowing your story already so i want to thank you again for coming on the behind the shield podcast and being so generous with your time today always an honor to talk to you, my friend always love what you do and have done and continue to do